Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Leading, the new channel of interviews that Rory Stewart and I do. And our guest today is perhaps the least well-known of our interviewees so far, but far from the least interesting, definitely amongst the most courageous, and certainly a leader. She's the leader in a fight, and I'm now quoting the name of her campaign, Stop Uyghur Genocide. And she's the UK director of the World Uyghur Congress. She's also, amazingly, a singer, a writer, an artist, a photographer, an award-winning interpreter, and she's a former chemistry teacher. She's been living in exile in London with her son since the year 2000, and she's never been back to her native, what she calls, East Turkestan. I met her at a recent Holocaust memorial event hosted by the Anne Frank Trust in a small group of people, which contained a Holocaust survivor, the descendant of a Holocaust survivor, and a recent victim of anti-Semitic violence who were lighting candles together. And she was there as a reminder that genocide remains a threat and for some a reality. So that day we got talking and I felt that our listeners would like to share in that conversation. So I asked her to come on the podcast. So if I pronounce this well, tell me so. And if I pronounce it badly, tell me. Rahima Mahmoud, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's Nana. Narima, most of our listeners will have heard of the struggle of Uyghur Muslims. But just to start, who are the Uyghurs? How many Uyghurs are there? Where are they? What are their beliefs and values? And what is the genocide of which you were speaking at the Anvranic Trust? So we Uyghurs, we are Turkic people. So we speak Uyghur language, which is almost the same as the Uzbek language. And the only difference is the kind of dialect. So the root we call, our, um, a lot of Turks call us Uyghur Turks. And uh, we believe in Islam as uh, we are Muslim. And uh, East Turkestan, or the Chinese government official uh, Jin, title, Jinjiang. Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And Xinjiang means the new frontier or the new territory Although the Chinese government uh, claim uh, that the Xinjiang is a historically as a part of China, but the name itself gives it away. New frontier. Xinjiang, new frontier. And uh, so the Uyghurs are very different from, you know, the, the way how the Uyghurs look and also because of our very different cultural traditions, uh, of course, the language and uh, belief as, as Muslims. Um, so the so-called Xinjiang is geographically is in the heart of Central Asia. So the reason we call it East Turkestan, although it also has the political uh, meaning, but also that geographically is the, you have this vast Turkestan, the land of the Turks. So the Western Turkestan and where we are is the east of the land of Turkic people. And if you look at it on the map, you're, I mean, it's a big place. Your borders are Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Pakistan all border a certain part of Xinjiang, East Turkestan. So it's, it's a big place. How many people define themselves, identify as Uyghurs? Um, well, according to the Chinese uh, official census, it's approximately 12 million. 12 million. Let's say that the Uyghurs are 12 million. Um, 
But we Uyghur people, we believe we are about 20 to 25 because uh, historically, especially since the occupation by the CCP, Chinese government, they hide certain facts in mm. order to make us to look very minority. And why? What is the what is the thinking behind what you call the genocide against you? What are they trying to do with you? Completely wipe out the identity not necessarily physically wipe out the whole entire Uyghur people, but the identity, the language, the religion, and uh, everything that means or reflects who we are as, as Uyghurs. And to try to put yourself in their mind, I know that must be difficult, but when they're sitting there thinking we need to do this, why are they thinking that? Well, I mean, in my mind, it's very difficult to understand, but I can, like you said, I can think from their point of view, it's a paranoia. Paranoia is that the Chinese government, including the people, never felt home. Because in 1949, when Chinese Communist Party uh, invaded or took over, 4 to 5% population were Chinese. The rest were the Uyghur and other uh, Turkic uh, groups like uh, Uzbeks, Tatars, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, and uh, Hui Muslim uh, also. And now when we look at it, it's about in the city, some cities, there are more than 50%. And they are in control of all the wealth, petrol, gold, all the mines, we say black and uh, white gold. White is a cotton. Cotton, 84% China's cotton comes from the region. And then you have coal. Where I come from is a very known, well-known for, for its coal, uh, many different uh, minerals and uh, um, jade, um, you name it. So, of course, as any kind of colonizers, they, you know, they, they, the wealth is extremely important. Mm. But this paranoia, that feeling not at home, feeling that the Uyghurs always resented and they feel that they are not the owner of that land. And in order to completely feel safe, so then you convert everyone to be, to think like them. And these... Um what do we call them? Do they call them re-education camps? I don't know what you call them, but you've got how many people are in these camps where they're being essentially detained and re-educated, in quotes? It's not re-education. But that's it's, what they call it. Yeah, that's what they call it. It's torture camps. It's uh, concentration camps. I translated for many uh, survivors who some taught in those camps, were forced to teach in those camps, and some were detained. And uh, we have two survivors living in this country. And how many are, how many people are there? Give us a sense of the scale. Well, I know it's hard to know, but roughly. we believe up to three million. Three million. Up to three million, but. From the uh, UN report, that first time they reported in August 2018, it said up to one million in re-education camps. Um, but we believe the numbers are far, far higher. So you left in 2000. And if I remember this rightly, essentially you were studying and you got the opportunity to do a master's degree at the University of Central Lancashire. Did you ever go and see Burnley Football Club play? Sorry. Why not? Why not? <laughs> so you... I well, you know, I had to complete the master's degree in a year. And, uh, you know, English is my second language. So it was, was absolutely, not yes, Fair I didn't well, have next time, When you yeah. go back, I'll take you to a, a, a Burnley game. <laughs> would, would love, but, yes, would love so, to. And you came, and, and before you left, you decided actually you were going to use this opportunity essentially to escape. Yes, I was teaching. Uh, I graduated from a petrochemical background, uh, Dalian University of Technology. In fact, I was in chairman in 1989 as well. So my activism didn't just start after I came here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was one of the students in Tiananmen. So um, the discrimination is so systematic there. I worked at the petrol industry for four years. In the end, I had to leave. I cannot cope 
in, and I became a lecturer at a college. Um, then after 1997, February 5th, Agulja massacre, uh, that's where I am from. I was visiting my uh, family uh, during the school holiday with my son, who was only a year and a half at that time. So this uh, peaceful protest uh, met with Chinese CCP uh, violence, killing over 100, and then this terror started from that night. Door-to-door raid and uh, take away men, young men. So um, that really made me to make this decision. I but thought, you came without your son? It wasn't possible to obtain a visa. Mm. You know, the, the immigration, one of the criteria for you to get visa, whether you're going to go back or you're going to stay. So mm. they, that is a very hard decision. So how long were you here without your son and your husband? Two years. Two years. And then um, they applied for visa in 2001. It was refused. Then 2002, when they applied to come to attend my graduation ceremony, that was approved. And that's how, you know, we reunited. And do you have, you may not know the answer to this, but do you have family in some of these camps? I don't have any answers to this. Um, you know, you might know from my story, the last time I spoke to my eldest brother, after two months I cannot get hold of them, was January the 3rd. 2017. It's very difficult to just even just find tell, out any information. Tell me about that conversation, though. What, 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 so that you, you, it must have been meant a lot because you remember the date. I don't remember the date of many conversations in my life. So what was, what was so significant about that conversation? Yes, uh, from August 2016, no one would answer my phone calls. People removed me from WeChat. We had a WeChat family group, friend groups. For two months, I cannot get hold of anyone. And I thought maybe the new year, normally, you know, we send messages and I wasn't, there's no news. In the end, on the 3rd of January, I called my eldest brother, just his landline and I didn't stop for almost two hours. I thought, Someone has to answer my call. I need to know what happened. Because I heard a lot of, a lot of rumors at the time that, uh, you know, they Im- implemented some really very tough policies and the people are disappearing from people who are still communicating with their families. And then after this 20, 30, maybe 50 phone call, uh, my brother answered his and uh, he said, why? Because as Muslim and uh, my father is a very religious man, so we, from very young age, when we greet anyone, even when we uh, speak over on the phone, is the first thing we say, oh, assalamu alaikum, is uh, in, in a Muslim way mm. of greeting. So I heard that that word, assalamu alaikum, was banned. I didn't believe. I thought, it can't be. You know, this is a, such a common, like, a, it's just when you call, how are you? It's for us, it's like, how are you? Then I said, why no one is answering my call, brother? Um, he said, they did the right thing. Please leave us in God's hands. We leave you in God's hand too. And he put the phone down. So I can hear the fear, the fear from my brother's voice and from what I remember all my brothers they were like fearless very dignified and that's how my father was as well but I can understand the threat it might have been warned by the police that if you ever you know answer the call or if you call her then you will be taken to the camps and I so think you maybe don't know, that was. You a, don't even know where they are or whether they're alive or dead. No, the safest way for me, I mean, for them to be safe, is for me not to contact them. So, how, how does, I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that emotionally? How does your son deal with that? You're, well, now, you're now separated from your husband, yeah? Yes. So you, but you and your son yeah, live just here. My, um, me and my son. Mm. Well, first six months was very difficult. You know, um, 
one day I was I was crying in the kitchen while cooking. Um, my son walked in and saw me. I normally don't show my emotion too much because I don't want to burden him. So he came to me and he just hugged me tightly and he said, Mom, please be strong. We will fight back. We will be strong. Things will not, shouldn't be like this all the time. It will change. He's in his 20s now, yeah? Yes. And uh, he was never interested in this, you know, my, my activism. Oh, but although he is very interested in promoting our culture, language, and so he set up uh, his now network called the Tarim Network. That gave me kind of hope. It just kind of lifted me off this burden and this sadness. So my focus was more on what to do rather than you know, just dwell on to this this kind of sadness. And after a while, you get used to it because the Uyghurs also have a saying, said, you will get used to hell after seven days. Pretty bleak message, isn't yes. it? Yes. So well, I also, um, a, a cancer survivor, uh, you know, I had a grade three cancer in 2013. I remember the first week I had panic attack when I was told that cancer might have spread. But then after I learned that it was, wasn't spread, I was very happy and I felt like I accepted. After I accepted, everything became very easy. How was the NHS for you? It was good. Good. <laughs> I was a very, very lucky one. I think they do look after cancer patients yeah. very yeah. gently. And you know, I mean, if I were in China, you know, many people cannot afford chemotherapy. It's just far too expensive. And you're a very, very talented musician. And I've spent much of the weekend listening to a lot of your music and some of your favorite songs by others. Um, and funny enough, I think... Um, this is not an audition to present Desert Island Discs for the BBC. I think Match of the Day is more my um, my metier. <laughs> but I I think we're going to play two or three of your songs through the interview. And I think given what you've just talked about, we should play the one that's called My Son, which is about separation. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what this song's about and, and tell us a little bit more generally about your culture and why you see culture as being the thing that you have to protect and fight for? So to me, for one to be happy, a food and shelter is not enough. We need another type of sustenance, something that satisfies your soul. And for me, as Uyghur, my soul cannot be satisfied if I'm not allowed to speak my language, mm. if I'm not allowed to sing the songs that I grow up with. The Han Chinese are trying to stop your singing, your writing, your, your art, they're trying to erase that. Everything is censored. It has to be their way, their, what you call Chinese characteristics. It has to be even religion, you know. So now we know that even the um, nurseries, primary schools banned mm. the Uyghur language. So uh, I can name hundreds of writers that I used to admire, I still admire, of course, I admire. They're all in prison. They're poets, writers. They're all serving 16, 20 years in prison. Professors uh, from uh, universities who resisted when the announcement came that they are not allowed to teach in Uyghur mm. and that all the Uyghur language class uh, has to be stopped. So th that is the reason why I think you can imagine you, someone suddenly, you know, forced you to speak a different language after invaded your country. How would you feel? Tell us about this, this first song that we're going to hear then. It's called My Son. So it's called My Dear Son, When Will You Return? So um, when I read this poem by... Uh, Muhammad Abdul Majid, uh, an exiled poet who lives in Turkey, who didn't speak to his mother for many years, just like me. Because of being in exile? Not only just being in exile, because that is also banned. For any families have 
relatives, even sons or daughters abroad, regardless whether they are um, activists or involved in anything, they just banned them from speaking from 2016. Because why? They didn't want all this news about the camps and all that to spread to the exile yes, well, world. Yeah. You. Mm. So um, under the content itself, um, really, really touched my heart. I felt this as a mother. So you've turned this into a song? Yes. I just thought about, you know, if my mother was alive, you know, for so many years, mm. not being able to speak to me, I felt fortunate that my mother died before all this happened. So at least during that time, I was able to call her. We kept a very close relationship until she died. So that is the kind of feelings and reasons behind me for composing this song. And I thought also, you know, through art, through music, through uh, songs, that you can reach more people. Mm. You said this, I, I saw this on your, on your uh, website. For me, music is a site of resistance, a vehicle through which I can share our experience, our pain, but also our joy. When the regime does it all it can to break us, Expressing joy is a true act of defiance, which I just absolutely love. So let's listen to your first choice. When we were preparing to do this interview and you sent it to me, I said, okay, well, that's all very well, but I speak French, I speak German, I don't speak Uyghur. What does it mean? And you, as you're a brilliant translator and you've won awards for it, you, you sent me this. My eyes are weary from looking out for you. My hands are sore from praying for your return. My heart bleeds from being torn apart. My dear son, when will you return? Every day I wait on the road, yearning for your appearance all day long. The nights are sleepless until dawn breaks. My dear son, when will you return? When will you return? Without you by my side, I am alone. No food can pass my lips. My throat is too dry. I worry if you've eaten or not. My dear son, when will you return? My dear son, when will you return? That is so sad. We're going to come back with more talk and a bit more music after the break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, when, when we were uh, talking about... <laughs> about doing this podcast and you were telling me how nervous you were <laughs> and I was asking for more and more examples of your of your culture and you sent me a poem which I'm going to read out and you told me the story that it was written by somebody called Gunisa Imin who is in prison like some of these other artists that we talked about serving 17 years because her writing offended the Chinese and it was smuggled out handwritten by her smuggled out of her prison and found its way here and has been translated. So I'll read it out. It's a very similar theme to the separation song as well, isn't it, my son? When you think of me, shed no tears of grief. You must not fade away for those who've gone. If now and then you find me in your dreams, 
You must not look with longing down the road. Some things in life remain beyond our reach. Hold no anger in your heart on my account. Ask no news of me from people that you meet. Your thoughts of me must not weigh on your soul. Just think of me as someone on a journey. If I'm alive, one day I shall return. I won't give up on happiness so easily. There is much more that I still ask of life. Both of my stars have now been left among you. Please cherish them for me while I am gone. With the kindness that raised me up from childhood, let them live within your sheltering embrace. She has children, yeah? Yeah. So the two stars are her children. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I read out on the the podcast recently, we were talking about grief. So when she says, when you think of me, shed no tears of grief, you must not fade away for those who've gone. If now and then you find me in your dreams. And I, I read out a poem that my mother left us on her deathbed. She said, farewell, my family. My life is past. I loved you all to the very last. Weep not for me, but courage take. Love each other for my sake. For those you love, don't go away. They walk beside you every day. Yeah. I mean, imagine someone in prison being tortured and living and hell. Able, able to write and that. She able to write that. Hold no anger. But that's, that know, is where your point, when the regime does all it can to break us, expressing joy is a true act of defiance. Yeah. That's when what she's doing. you find the strength to, to be happy, mm. it's not easy. It's easy to be angry. Mm. So you've called Xinjiang, East Turkestan, you've called it a police state. And when you were phoning your brother, what was, do you imagine, was going through, was he thinking they're listening, they're watching? What was he thinking? Was he thinking they can recognize your voice? What's going on? He knows that they, they are listening. That's why he cannot say more than what he said. Otherwise, he would have asked, how are you? How are you doing? As always, because after I had cancer, if I didn't call him within a week, he used to complain and say, we worry about you. You know, you should, you should call us more often. Mm. And I also know that, uh, you know, they listens uh, well before, um, uh, you know, the, these camps mm. and also they the, uh, established the police state from 2009 after the Urumqi massacre. Um, because I read some of their own documents, it said no blind spot. You know, the cameras uh, installed everywhere. And we know the checkpoints set up uh, especially after 2014, uh, and uh, since 2013, she t- took power. So uh, we all were very aware. That's why when we spoke over the phone, we were very careful. And there are th- three countries, I think, three major countries, the United States, Canada, and the Netherlands, who've all called this out as genocide. But the British government hasn't. So far? The only government that called a genocide is U.S. And uh, the parliament's Canadian parliament is a f- number first parliament that oh, uh, declared as, as genocide. And the government still not. And uh, Holland as well, including this country, the, uh, the parliament. Um, uh, so the U- what's, what's the position with the U.K. government? UK the U.K. Parliament? government is not accepting this is genocide. They say court has to decide, but we don't have court to go to. Uh, you know, one China has a veto power, another is not a member. And uh, um, even though the independent tri- Uyghur tribunal led by Sir Jeffrey Nice declared this genocide based on the sheer number of women mm. uh, being forcibly sterilized and, uh, you know, forced abortion. Um, however, uh, the the government's reluctant uh, to call it genocide. And how how do you feel generally about the political support that you get around the world? Do you think China is so big and so powerful that these governments are just finding it very very difficult to to do what you would consider to be the right thing? It's very frustrating. It's extremely extremely frustrating. And I know the. Uh, we are facing the one of the biggest power, and especially because of the uh, economic power over many different countries. But I thought at least the UK and countries like Canada and the European countries would put human rights above the, uh, you know, the economic uh, benefits, interests, 
But uh, the reality is the genocide is happening since 2017. Uh, there are undeniable uh, proof, evidence, uh, satellite image of the camps, drone footage uh, that uh, many people might have seen. Mm -hmm. Andrew Marshall, when he interviewed the Chinese ambassador and showed that, that clip, mm -hmm. uh, drone footage of we'll, blindfolded. We'll, we'll, we'll send that to our listeners as well. And plus the leaked documents, mm. 400 pages leaked documents. Then last year, the police file of the faces almost 3,000 detainees, mm. the faces of youngest 15-year-old and the oldest was 72. Mm. The, you can just see the horror on their faces. You know, even for the UN to release its report, we had to wait month after month. And Michelle Bachelet released her report four minutes before her term ended. Four minutes before her term, term ended, she just wasn't able to release that report, called it may conclude crimes against humanity, didn't dare to uh, call it genocide. They diluted a lot of information regarding the uh, forced abortion and uh, forced sterilization part in order not to call it genocide. And do you imagine that, I, I thought the Dutch government had, but it's the parliament you're saying, but the American government having done that, called out as genocide, do you think that is about a genuine concern for you and your people, or is that actually just to have a go at China within their bigger geostrategic battle that's going on? When well, did they do that? When did the government, US government do that? Well, uh, the Trump administration yeah. uh, called it genocide. Uh, Pompey was very, very outspoken. He met uh, several survivors. They heard uh, from there, you know, directly from from mm. them about what is happening, including a gang rape victim. And uh, I do believe, I would like to believe that the decision was made based on the evidence and all the because there are so many leaked documents and mm. experts like Dr. Adrian Zenz, who's based mm -hmm. in U.S., produced the most uh, professional uh, reports based on the Chinese own documents, yeah. own open sources. And I would like to believe in that. Of course, you know, there are political uh, situations. Sure. Um, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not a politician. No. I'm not going to so, go but, into So that. to be fair, then the Trump administration you would say, did the right thing. Of course. And you'd like, did the and right you'd like thing. other governments to do the same. Yes. I just thought that um, in my mind, it's like because U.S. is far more powerful than many, many other countries, mm. maybe they feel that they are confident that they can confront, they can say it, they can call it. But I thought with the le U.S. leading, then other countries would follow as well. Haven't. And after the parliament voted, and I thought that the U.K. government will also call it genocide, but they didn't. Do you feel scared here? The, I mean, because, you know, we had that incident not long ago. It was in Manchester where Chinese officials were pretty violent against people who were protesting. And, I mean, do you, as you're going about by yourself, do you feel scared here? No, I'm not scared. I'm concerned. I, I'm I'm kind of a fearless person. Mm. If I, I am, get that feeling, yeah. <laughs> if I am scared, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I just overcome that long, long time ago. When you were talking earlier about China seeing East Turkestan, as you refer to it, as their territory and always has been, I couldn't help thinking of, but think of Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, on the streets of London and Salisbury, and, you know, we've had... We've had state assassinations take place, and the, you know China's a very, very authoritarian regime. And they does that not fill you with fear that you're possibly a target? Yeah, similar things happened to Uyghurs in Kazakhstan, mm. um, in Central Asian countries, neighboring countries. So far, not in Europe or America. Right. Um, so one thing that I do believe, although China is brutal. But they also a country that care about its face. Mm. So they care more about people not knowing about what they do 
rather than doing it in places where it would quickly become known. That has been the case, but we don't know, yeah. uh, you know, what happened next mm. uh, because the regime is becoming more aggressive. Mm. And they, what do you say to their claims that the reason they've had to take such firm action against the Uyghurs is that lots of them joined ISIS, that you had a, an attack on a, on a railway that led to 31 people being killed, that you had an incident in, with a car in Tiananmen Square where somebody else was killed, that they're saying this is necessary to deal with a threat from an Islamic threat. There is no Islamic threat in my view. It's a bunch of people just become so desperate. There are people in this country, in, in America as well, you develop mental problem after, you know, either uh, because of your certain personal problems mm. or in my country, especially from 1989 during the 80s and then, you know, after I left, the regime, the, the way of life, the Uyghurs just, it's not life. You're saying that some of those people might be easy pickings for an organization like ISIS. Exactly. Why Uyghur people go to ISIS? Because you're not fighting the Chinese. It's just, it doesn't make sense whatsoever. The traffickers benefited from these people because they so desperately want to get out. They, they came to Turkey. Then without knowing they were transferred to the hand of ISIS. I know one example, if you allow me, I would like to mm. share this. This poet, Abdurrahim Paraj, who is one of the top poets in, in uh, you know, living in exile in Turkey, and mm. I have huge respect for him. Um, his story is absolutely heartbreaking. So, he served three years in prison because he celebrated the life of uh, Abdurrahim Utgur, one of the most prominent and well-known poets of our time, when he was studying in Kashkar University literature. And it was on the eve of the Hong Kong was taken back, you know, the, the return of Hong Kong to the CCP. How was Apparently that? it was a, because it's a sensitive time. Normally when there is a, if when they call it a sensitive time, they arrest a lot, lot mm. of people. Mm. So he was arrested and then they confiscated his poems. He was where? Where was he? In, in Kashgar at that okay. time in 97. Yeah. So after serving three years prison, then he got married, he had children, but life wasn't a life for him over there because of the, the censorship. Uh, so he left illegally with his eldest son, who was 11 or 12 years old, uh, trafficked, uh, just paying a lot of money to the trafficker. So they were in Malaysia for almost a year waiting to be, uh, you know, taken to Turkey, to transfer to Turkey. He met quite a lot of Uyghurs, waiting for the same, you know, transfer by these traffickers. And uh, one day the uh, trafficker said, we have a plane, we can put several people to that, uh, but we cannot, you know, have you and your son. One of you have to go first. So uh, Abdurrahim thought it's better for his son to go because he befriended several people during the time when they lived in Malaysia illegally. So he told the guy that, please look after my son until I arrive. So he followed one month later. So he said before he left Malaysia, he spoke to his son. And when he arrived, he cannot get hold of him. Then a week later, he learned his son was in Syria. And then when he reached 14, and I think it was Christmas time, he received a message from the ISIS that his son is now going to carry out the mission, suicide mission. He's dead. Three Uyghur children I know that happened. I don't believe any Uyghur went there voluntarily. It's the traffickers. God knows how much money these people made for handing over a 13-year-old child to the hand of the ISIS. So when he told me the story first time, for many nights, I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about this child and also thinking about Abdurrahim, who also lost contact with 
all his children and his wife, he know that imprisoned for 11 years for giving birth to too many children. Mm. Let's talk about another Abdurrahim. Abdurrahim Hayat. Yes. Because you sent me some of his music. Yes. Tell us about this song that we're going to listen to. What's it called and what's it about? So, Abdurrahim is one of the most well-known uh, composer, singer, and we call him a Duta king. Duta is like a two-string guitar. Duta is two-string, two-string is that what it means, uh, duta? lute. Yeah, Duta. So, guitar, du what does guitar two. mean? What does guitar mean? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> but Duta, du tar, is two. Tar means string. So duta is a two-string. So du is two. Yeah, du is du two is, is a Persian. Right. Du is, and dutar is a, a two-stringed. Um, so Abdurrahim, we heard that he was arrested mm. for singing this song called Atlar, Fathers. The lyrics comes from, was by Yalqun Rozi, is another very well-known cultural figure who actually helped create the children's books as well, school books. And now he is serving, I think, about 20 years prison sentence for his writings and also uh, defending the Uyghur culture. And Abdurrahim so, is in prison as well? Yes, we believe he is, he is in prison. Um, so there is a story about Abdurrahim. So after he was arrested, um, because he's so well known and especially uh, really loved by the Turks, uh, one of the songs called Karshlashkanda uh, means uh, when we encounter under the lyrics by Abdurrahim Utkur. Uh, I mentioned that mm. this man is one of the most prominent mm. and beloved poets uh, in Uyghur history. So um, later, we, there was a rumor about Abdurrahim died in prison. So the Turkey, uh, the foreign office, first time condemned in with the strongest term of the Chinese government, killing this poet and singer. Then two days later, there was a video that the Chinese government uh, produced, a video clip. And you can see on YouTube of this video, Abdurrahim, uh, when you watch YouTube of his songs, he's, a, he's a very good looking and is a kind of very dignified, powerful, that kind of figure. And most of the songs is also is like about Uyghur culture, the pride and the history, who are Uyghurs, those kind of lyrics that he composed to, into songs. And he appeared on this video is a prisoner. You can see his head was shaven. He's just a completely different man. And he said, they are investigating me. They didn't torture me. Uh, I am okay. But this just shows the brutality. You know, there is no bottom line. But it also shows that the Turks, you say you, you identify much more closely with Istanbul than Beijing. You feel more Turkish than Chinese. Yes. And yet it took that for the Turkish government to stand up and say something. Yeah. Do you not feel very unsupported by the Erdogan regime? Well, there are, of course, we feel very frustrated and uh, sad mm. because Erdogan said in 2009, the July 5th uh, massacre, he was the only leader in the world called Chinese government committing genocide. He did. He did. Within one month, he had to apologize. And then the Chinese government went after him to appease and to take the opportunity to give money, invest, because, you know, the Erdogan's regime became distant from the, you know, the U.S. after the coup mm. and a lot of uh, difficulties. The so has he been faced. silent about you so, since yeah, then? Yeah, he was forced to become, become silent uh, in order to, I think, to receive all those funds. And, you know, I condemn that. But uh, compared to many other countries, uh, including like the neighboring countries, Turkey still stood up for Uyghurs. Mm. And uh, we had so many, a large number of Uyghurs trapped in Turkey after, um, you know, this atrocities started from 2016. So they're living there, although we have uh, several being uh, returned, uh, sadly, but we still consider Turkey as, as our hope, as our second 
mm. home, and so I don't want to go into no, too also much. They, yes, they have. They have. They are the biggest taker of refugees. Refugees in the world. Exactly. So Already. I give credit to, to that humanity of the Turkish people. Mm. Uh, this song, uh, we come back to this song, Atlar um, is fathers. Uh, the lyrics says that like, people always praise about their mothers. All the songs is about mothers. <laughs> There are fathers, you know, we have these Stand fathers. Stand the fathers, yes. Abdurrahim. He's right. <laughs> yes, and the fathers who were the heroes, you know, who fought on the horseback defended our land exactly and uh, you know they are uh, they use the dads. word <laughs> they use the word jihad and jihad there doesn't mean the, the nowadays yeah, yeah. jihad jihad is always used is a word that you fight against the invader defend your land your people and your religion but Chinese government used that word said that he is spreading oh. the terrorist ideology And also the Yalqun Ruzi who wrote the poem is also the deemed problematic. So that's why he's in jail? Not only just that one, but that's one of the reasons. Well, one of the many, many other reasons, other accusations that the Chinese government mm. made well, against let's, him. Let's listen to Abdurim Hait putting the case for fathers. Right, so that's Abdurrahim Hayat, who is in jail, putting a bad word in a poem. The power of China is... Absolutely extraordinary. You you spoke at COP26 in Glasgow, and I, I got the sense that you were worried that there's a danger that the world might go soft on China's climate policies as well because of their political power. Oh, definitely. They have been soft. The amount of waste, pollution, is just unbelievable. Mm. I mean, I worked in the petrochemical industry. I know that... Uh, when when I came to this country, I studied, uh, my master's degree is environmental waste management. And uh, when I look at the standard that this country set up and, uh, you know, the most Western world, I mean, that China is far from it. The residential buildings and the distance from the, you know, petrochemical plants mm. that you can see from your uh, balcony, this smoke that is in, in the air. And uh, the, one of the highest of my country has the highest cancer rates in China because also the nuclear mm. um, explosion, that, mm. that's a base, nu uh, nuclear test base. So th this is another important issue that the world should, should really tackle, mm. should really condemn China for it. Now, on um, Desert Island Discs, Once they've asked me to present that, after I've done Match of the Day, Sports Personality of the Year, and a few other programs, maybe the BBC Six O'Clock News every now and then, th at the end of it, they always say, if you could only take one song with you. Okay. And I get the feeling from our exchanges over the weekend that the next one might be yours. And this is, this is called Tarim? Yes. And it's your song? You wrote this? No, it's, it's not It's a traditional folk song. It's a contemporary folk. It's a contemporary folk song. Yeah. And do I detect a little bit of Scottish and Irish in there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. I thought so. Definitely. I reckon. I reckon it just needs a little bit of a bagpipe track. Yes. Just kind of going through there. <laughs> Maybe um, I can uh, collaborate with, so yeah. with someone like that. Absolutely. Yeah, someone who I'm can sure play I can, that. I can yeah, find definitely. you the right person for that. What, um, but just tell me why, what, tell me about the song. And tell me why it's your favorite. So Tarim, the lyrics was written by someone who didn't dare to uh, reveal the identity in the 60s when large number of young Uyghurs were taken to Tarim labor camp. 
one of the most notorious camps in the desert near the Tarim River. It's the second largest desert in the world is Teklamakan Desert, that those camps still exist. Those prisoners still are forced to pick cotton and uh, there. So this was a song written about that tragedy that the person who was going to Tarim, and uh, it says, if you come to Tarim, I will adorn you with flowers. And it's uh, something that is impossible. It's in the middle of desert. There's no, you know, there's no way, but it just kind of a message also shows the optimism that the Uyghurs always have. And that's how we survive. In the midst of the horror, people still find way to to be happy and to find hope. So this Tarim, when you listen to the voice, uh, it's very, very sad. Mm. Uh, the, the melody is very sad, but also uh, end with something really kind of uplifting that, you know, I can turn the deserts into oasis. Well, I guess somebody might say when the regime does all it can to break us, expressing joy is a true act of defiance. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Good luck in everything you, you do. Yeah, Good luck in trying to get the UK government to call this out. I hope one day you see your family again. Thank you. And I also would like the listeners who are listening to this, um, please support the Stop Uyghur Genocide, donate and join the fight. Thank you. Thank you. So this is Rahima Mamut and the SOAS Silk Road Collective playing out this episode of The Rest is Politics Leading.